Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. In 1867, Mark Twain had a relatively cushy job with the New York Tribune, and he frequently compared himself to the Tribune's editor, Horace Greeley, which must have seemed a shocking hubris to those who overheard it. Greeley was the first or second most important newspaper editor and media magnate of the 19th century. To that point, the previous year, the revenue of the paper he founded had been the contemporary equivalent of $1.6 billion, almost three times what the New York Times brings in annually. Probably no man had accumulated more wealth and power by virtue of the penny press revolution, which had reshaped American media in the decades before the Civil War. The 1860s Tribune wielded cultural power much greater than any single news organization in the 21st century. It and its nearest competitors, especially the New York Herald, which Twain would also work for in the coming year, had made the nation literate, had introduced millions of Americans to a social imaginary which exceeded their geographic regions, had reshaped how they perceived the world and their place within it. These papers had the power to make or break politicians and entire parties, to make stock markets rise and fall, and to create celebrities, Mark Twain among them. Their contemporary equivalent is less the New York Times or Fox News than it is Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. According to the conventional wisdom of the time, there was no better place to be an ascendant media personality than the New York Tribune. But part of the reason Twain was so obsessed with Greeley during this period was that he was contemplating the long shadow the editor cast and the possibility that the conventional wisdom was wrong. He was increasingly disinterested in coasting on Greeley's coattails and rather was looking to build something himself in the new media environment he expected would emerge from the political chaos of the war and the anticipated technological and economic booms of Reconstruction. Twain was wrong about a lot, but his instinct that the Tribune and the Herald would never grow more powerful than they were in 1867 proved to be correct. They were about to enter a long, slow decline during which they would rather quickly become indistinguishable from other periodicals, eventually be forced to merge and, exactly 100 years later, cease to exist entirely. Twain had astutely understood what is now a fundamental principle of media studies, that cultural power, no matter how concentrated or seemingly totalizing, is actually quite fleeting. This principle should animate our response to recent crises at Twitter, Facebook, Disney, and Netflix. It feels, as it must have to Twain in 1867, like an era is ending. The most direct expression of this sensation I've so far encountered came from our guest today, Ian Bogost, in his column for The Atlantic, The Age of Social Media is Ending, published two weeks ago. Ian is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, jointly appointed in film and media studies and computer science and engineering. He edits the Platform Studies series for MIT Press and the Object Lessons series for Bloomsbury and The Atlantic. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash downscaling.
I am going to be a little selfish at the outset. I expect many listeners are tuning in to hear us talk about the collapse of Twitter and what you recently called the plausible end of social media. And we will get into that. But the part of that essay that really stuck with me was your somewhat offhand, but I think very astute assertion about the mass psychology of social media, which might be most magnified on Twitter. That's my speculation, to be clear. You said simply that social media turns our existing connections into a latent broadcast channel, and by doing so, induces billions of people all at once to see themselves as celebrities, pundits, and tastemakers. Now, as a Twain scholar, I've come to believe that what we now think of as celebrity is actually a relatively new figuration. It emerged during Twain's lifetime. He was part of maybe the second generation of what are now recognizable as celebrities. And he took his own celebrity global as maybe no other cultural figure had done up to that point. And something that's always struck me in reading both his published and private writings is that the psychic burdens of fame, of celebrity, were evident to Twain almost immediately. He begins contemplating them even as early as his uh, 30s, before his star has really risen all that high. And moreover, he was almost immediately conscious that the mere existence of celebrities like himself, like Charles Dickens, P.T. Barnum, Buffalo Bill, Sarah Bernhardt, etc., that the diffusion and saturation of their celebrity was almost like a kind of neurovirus, where the proven possibility of some kind of mass celebrity meant that many people would start imagining themselves in that position and from that position, regardless of how absurdly unrealistic it might be to do so. And so Mm -hmm. I think these habits of mind predate social media, certainly, but social media exacerbates their effects. And so I wanted to start by asking you to sort of expand on that aspect of your Atlantic essay. There's a kind of McLuhan-esque character to it. The existence of social platforms provokes certain kinds of behavior and persuades us to rationalize that behavior ex post facto. And so how does that work? And also maybe why is that a problem? I mean, celebrity is nothing new. We should get that out of the way right off the bat. But celebrity has been altered pretty substantially by social media. And maybe I'll tell you a little anecdote about writing the story as a as a way to to get into it. So I was I was writing that that line. I don't remember exactly how it reads now, but we debated me and my editor about whether to call this thing celebrity. Maybe it was when I was talking about you know sort of wanting to be Instagram famous or something like that. And I there's a point at which we introduced a word like traditional celebrity or something into the mix as a way of distinguishing Mark Twain, Taylor Swift kind of celebrity from whatever it is that we were dealing with in the influencer economy, et cetera. It was fine. It was just normal editorial process. And I was I, I had thought of it when I was writing, saying, like, ah, is this is this gonna land or 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 not? And you know, of course, some would say, well, how sort of retrograde of you to want to make a distinction between a social media star's celebrity and a Hollywood actor's celebrity. That's that's very quaint, uh, what an old man you are to do it. Uh, but I think we do have to, at some level, there, there is some kind of difference. And one of those differences is, and this is going to, I'm going to get in trouble right off the bat. One of those differences is that until the, let's say the reality television age, celebrity was in some sense earned. 
Now, it may not have been justified, but it was earned. You were a, a famous author or movie star or, or singer or business personality, CEO, politician. Whatever the case might be, you had renown and recognition, and that renown and recognition was associated with some kind of success, even if the success was just in achieving a level of position that didn't necessarily have remuneration associated with it and so on. And then, of course, it became possible to be famous for being famous. I mean, that was the sort of Kardashian, Paris Hilton novelty. It happened before then, too, but that, that's when it became uh, mainstream. And, and we all know about that. And, but I think there was this third moment, if those are the first two, which you know, maybe is wrong, but if we treat those as two, at least, there's another moment in the, the rise of celebrity, which corresponds with, with social media's advent and popularity. And that's the moment when it becomes possible for anyone to be almost immediately recognizable globally uh, for good or bad reasons, and thereby to have the sense in this kind of lottery winner way that it could be me. I deserve it, even. And on the negative side of that, we saw those public shaming uh, events. What's the famous example of the woman who gets on the, is the, the backbone of this successful book on the subject? Ian's thinking of a 2013 tweet by Justine Sacco, which figures prominently in the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. The woman gets on the plane to Africa and she's like, I hope I don't get AIDS. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? <clears throat> What's her name? I'm not going to remember it. Yeah, I don't either. But there's that kind of thing where you're kind of instantly renowned by virtue of the, the spread of your, of your name and message. And then there's uh, the supposedly positive you know, version of it where it's, oh, I'm an aspiring whatever I am. or not an aspiring anything. But the thing about me, along with everyone on the internet, is that you ought to be hearing me. You ought to see my images. You ought to hear my words. You ought to receive my message. I deserve it. Why not me? And that, I think, answers your question as to what's changed and also what's bad about it. We just don't all have the right to audience that we've come to believe that we do. And this is a difficult pill to swallow because it is the cyber utopianists sell for the internet in general, that this was supposed to democratize speech and publishing and that you didn't have to be anyone in particular to say something, to write something, and to get it in front of potentially everybody's eyes. That didn't happen well for a long time. And it's hard to look at it and kind of go, yeah, on the whole, on average, if we take everything into account, that vision of internet life was realized. It's possible to point to examples in which it was, which then tempt us to be the center rather than the edge, right? But on the whole, it's been catastrophic for people to have that kind of democratized access. And one reason for it is that you begin to perceive yourself as this latent celebrity or this temporarily inconvenienced famous person or someone who is already famous actually whose message just hasn't been fully recognized yet and you can get that from posting one thing on instagram or, or, or facebook or, or twitter and just refreshing your feed and kind of wondering to yourself where are all the hearts because i deserve them i'm just waiting for them to roll in any minute now it's going to happen you already take that subject position when you use a uh, social media and that's different from where we started with social networks, which is one of the distinctions I make in this article, which was that, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm here to interact with a known small group uh, of people rather than with the world. I want to 
step back to that idea of techno-utopianism. We talked about this a little bit with Sarah Roberts in the last episode, and she referred to it as a kind of cyber-libertarianism, a Californian ideology that is being espoused in a way by Elon Musk. What I think is so curious about it, and the way you describe it strikes me the same way, is there is this kind of paradox where the power seems to reside more than ever in the control of capital, right? And yet he somehow becomes the voice of democratization, of the citizen journalist. This idea of social media as a vehicle for democratization, which has been part of the way Facebook and Twitter and others have rationalized itself to Congress, to regulators since mid-2000s. How how do those things, you know, sit side by side? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a great question. And they don't. It's a simple answer. Everything was a lie, but they were lies in different ways. The California ideology, which is, you know, maybe summarizable as, as the idea that a kind of computational life could overthrow prior forms of political, governmental, social control, while it's been interpreted as a, a kind of libertarian uh, rallying cry, we also know that libertarianism isn't really libertarian. It's not about your and my freedom to, to speak or do what we'd like. It's about my ability to control what you can say or do, which is just power all over again. But when you don't have the power, you feel that you don't, you can raise your fist and uh, claim to be fighting the good fight against the incumbents. And it's funny how, how often people get lured in by this, duped by it, uh, over and over and over again. Even with Musk, who very clearly didn't mean he was a free speech absolutist in the sense that anybody can say what they want now on his platform, but rather, you, know, you can say what I like. It's on my platform. So I meant say things I like. I'm a free speech muskist or something. Mm -hmm. It's just hilarious, you know, in, in retrospect. Like if you think back to the notions that people had two or three weeks ago before all this started with Twitter, did they really believe that? Did they really think, oh, well, I, mean, I don't know, maybe he'll do a good job. Maybe he'll, you know, change things for the better. And it doesn't matter. What matters more is that it was successful. One of the things we don't talk about enough when we talk about the current age, the computational age, the internet era, not just the social media era, but the whole internet era, is that it is a long, ugly, ghastly power inversion that if you were a computer nerd, which is the kind of person who would have adopted the Californian ideology, and maybe you were a computer nerd in the counterculture moment of the 1960s, and so you're also a different kind of counterculturalist, right? That, you know, the, some of those nerds started off saying exactly the same things uh, that people say today, where we were going to wrest control of computation from the, the government and organizations and corporations and put it in the hands of the people. You know, Ted Nelson and others with this like figure of the the priest priesthood of computation. It's going to return to the people. The personal computer was meant to do this. All this sort of stuff. We've seen it over and over and over and over again. But ultimately, it's been a fight of nerds versus jocks, archetypal high school click style power battles. Wall Street versus Silicon Valley. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that would be a more honest way of talking about it. Now it's finally cool to be a, a computer programmer. So screw you for holding me down all those years, or for at least for my perception. I, I just don't think we talk about this enough, that the nerds won, they got social capital, they got capital capital, and they became exactly the ghastly figures that they were opposing, maybe worse ones. 
but at least commensurate ones. And so this idea that there is some kind of a progressive, you know, or at least a naturally progressive, a, a, a kind of a priori progressive political thrust to these activities, whether that progressivism is leftist or libertarian or whatever, is preposterous, right? It's just about control and power and money is one mechanism toward it. I don't know how you feel about this, but I've been watching for the last week or whatever it's been, everybody talk about the poor tech workers, you know, who are now being fired. You know, I remember when this happened in, in the dot-com era and we, did, we didn't see it this way. We were like, oh, they're, they're being laid off from their cushy jobs or, or, you know, Musk is doing these truly preposterous, you know, hilarious, bizarre things that is certainly ghastly to imagine your boss doing, but like, I don't know what you expected. And those characters are now presented as, uh, as innocents, as victims. Right. I don't want to understate this. I mean, you know, like there, there are people who are on H-1B visas whose uh, ability to stay in a country that maybe they mean home. Everyone is in their actual situation as a real human. Like, of course, of course. You know, but if you've been making 800 grand a year with your total comp plan at a big tech company and now you don't have a job anymore, like, forgive me if I'm not super empathetic. We've had this discourse in which that power relationship is also not discussed. And somehow the tech workers are treated as though they're uh, factory farm right. line workers. Yeah. The, the culture of engineering and computer science has not exactly been proletarian in its sympathies for some period of time now. No, right, right. Yeah. What I expect some people listening to you now and also reading your piece from last week might suggest is that one of the outcomes of this that you seem to be proposing, maybe hoping for, is a decline in the number of voices amplified by right. social media. I have no doubt, as you have probably already, I'm sure your inbox has already filled up with stuff like this, that this is being interpreted as a kind of journalistic or academic elitism. Yeah, Whatever sure. identity they ascribe to you, right? right? It is a manifestation of your desire to hold on to the bugle, right? Yeah. To the mouthpiece, soapbox, bullhorn, whatever. Yeah. How do you rationalize this idea of downscaling, right? Sure. That, that we need to speak less and expect less to be heard. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have heard this objection. There's all manner of ways of, of, of mounting it. You've mentioned some of them. Uh, there are others too. So if you accept, and you don't have to, but like if you accept, even just tentatively, my premise that we need downscaling in some form, that one of the expressions of destruction of internet culture through social media and other forms is their massive mega scale, as my Atlantic colleague Adrian LaFrance has called it, that that having a companies that seek billions of users, billions of customers across the globe uh, in order to make previously unimaginable amounts of money on the backs of those individuals and the data that they create and expose by encouraging them to engage as much as possible with their software services in order to produce those interactions that then exhaust off the data that has value to them if you accept that that system has problems, at the very least, and needs to be reformed, then I don't see any other way to move forward than through some kind of downscale. And that you could say, okay, well, it's just regulatory, though. We'll keep all the scale, but we'll control the kinds of things that can be said on it. That might not be possible. And this is what the tech companies always say. Like, it's just not possible. Like we can't, there's so much material being generated every minute, every second. 
we couldn't possibly moderate at all without like automated systems or without these other kinds of, of algorithmic interventions. And then, you know, when people respond, they kind of go, yeah, 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 that, like that makes sense. But, you, you know, you need to do something you need to invest in rather than coming to the first obvious conclusion to me is what if you just had less of it or just less material? Wouldn't that help? There's no natural law that says that we need to have an infinite amount of speech in order to have free speech, let alone healthy speech or speech that includes and incorporates uh, many different kinds of voices from many different kinds of communities. The objection requires a, a, a moment of pause. It becomes so unfamiliar to say, well, like, hold up, what if you just like shut up for a second and just like thought about it for a minute before you said something? That's really what I'm talking about. Not that I get to have as much of a voice as I want and nobody else gets one at all. And I'm including myself in this criticism. I don't deserve to speak that much to that many people all the time either. And if you say to me, well, Bogus, but you're published at The Atlantic. Yeah, that, that's true. That's a, that's a platform I earned over a long time and that I work at professionally every day. And that I take very seriously. It's not, it's not an off-the-cuff kind of thing. And I also don't do it every second, every minute. It's a considered process. And yeah, when, when all of us had that kind of access through like blogs and those sorts of technologies of the early Web2 age, that was better. Was it still doomed? Maybe. It was certainly better because it was downscaled. It was slowed down. There were breaks that were applied to it. And those breaks weren't just like my ability to have self-control or something, which is just not going to work. They were in the systems themselves, in the platforms, what they made possible or what they encouraged. One of the things that I did recently when it became clear that Twitter might, uh, uh, <laughs> might not be a going concern, like many others, I started to worry about the platform, the risk associated with, with the platform that I'd built there and the access to my supposed interlocutors, wherever the hell they are. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll finally start one of these newsletters everybody does. And I, you know, I wrote a post on Substack, which I had had an account on for years but hadn't bothered to do, just trying to express and feel through why it felt so hard, not just to move the community or the followers or whatever, but just to write in that mode, in that kind of bloggish mode versus the quippy one-liners or the images on Instagram or, or what have you. And I think it's easy to forget because we've been frogs boiling how easy these software tools make it to say anything all the time. I think an honest person, an honest person will acknowledge it. They'll recognize that, you know, you open your phone and there's just stuff you just don't need to say or that you should sit on or that no one needs to hear. Or you delete an hour later. Right. Or that even if you do say it, you don't deserve an audience for. Or if someone else says it, that they don't deserve you talking to them. But this is what these tools have provided. After I wrote this piece, you know, there was somebody who was trying to talk to me about it on, on Twitter with this, this genre of objection that you're, that you're flagging, quoting this exact part of the, of the piece where I'm talking about how you know, we've been trained to think that we deserve an audience and that others deserve our rejoinder. They deserve an audience with us doing some kind of like debate me pose on this. And, and you know, when I said, well, you're doing exactly what I said, whatever I think about it, this is exactly the phenomenon that I was talking about where I've said something and now you have the right to say something back because the software has provided you with that ability and habit and, and social custom have encouraged it. And we can't even really have that conversation, you know, that sort of recognition of, oh yeah, I see what you mean. Cause you can't lose face either. You got to hold your guns. And so I just reject this objection as, as being 
a massive overstatement of the actual position I'm taking, which is that well, we would all be better off with fewer opportunities to speak to as large an audience as we have access to. Well, let me go down this road in a slightly different way. I do want to move on to a different topic next, but I, I think the natural follow-up here is in the piece you s- sort of signal that if Twitter does indeed fail, right. what we should not be looking for is a replacement for Twitter. Yeah. And I noticed when you know I was preparing for today, I have started up an account on Mastodon, and I, I noticed that you had one too. But I also noticed that you have not joined the Twitter migration, right? That your your account is pretty much dormant there. Right? You have not attempted to to bring over your Twitter following. I don't even know how you do it. I don't even know how you. I mean, yeah, like yeah. You're, you're right. I I. I I had to go do it because this is my profession. I have to know what's going on, right. that kind of thing. But I'm against it. I'm against it. Uh, I'm against it philosophically, but I also think there's a functional problem. The functional problem is easier to talk about, which is that these consumer internet services have spent two decades really, really, really refining their ability to make things easy to use, reducing friction in order to create mm-hmm. that opportunity for you to post. You know, And there is a craft to that and notwithstanding anything else that, I, that I've said, I, I have to respect that craft. The, I have some awe mm-hmm. for it. These things, they don't always work super great, right? But the ease with which you can get an app and just start in, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Twitter or something you haven't seen before, Be Real, whatever, TikTok, it's remarkable. And Mastodon is not like that. Mastodon mm-hmm. is a trash fire. And so one of the reasons I haven't done much there is that I kind of don't know how. Like I, I, I went back and logged in and I didn't know how to log in. I had to find my server and then I found it again and I logged back in and it was like, I just kind of didn't know what to do next. And then I logged out again and I got the app and couldn't quite figure out how to get it to find my account. In, in, and you know, I'm like pretty savvy, right? I just don't have the patience mm-hmm. for this kind of thing. But that, that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is the philosophical one, which is that we shouldn't be using these services. And so let's not go use more of these services. Even if they seem better, like there's no question that Mastodon has the potential to be somewhat downscaled, but there is a bit of a irony in it. And it's not a nicotine gum kind of irony. <laughs> it's like I've moved from the three packs of, of Marlboros a day to two packs of camels a day. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the same expression of attention uh, seeking and giving. If you're serious about having a problem, with what social media has done to community and, and democracy and personal well-being and mental health and all of the rest of these things. You should at least take a break, which is kind of what I'm doing. Like, what what will happen? I am desperately hoping that Twitter really does go down and that I lose all of whatever it is that I've built there because I want to feel what that's like. I want it to be a loss in a way. You want to grieve. Well, I don't care about grieving. I think there's a lot of emo sentiments out there right mm-hmm. now. I, I guess they're earnest, and so who am I to judge? But they feel a little silly. Like, what are we grieving? Right. Exactly. Sure, you know, okay, yeah, I've met people, I've had I've been able to do... Yes, but it's terrible. It's terrible. And so I, I want it to go away, is, mm-hmm. is what I want. I want it to be destroyed. And I don't know if there's a domino effect to be had from Twitter's collapse, uh, but it would at least be something. And I also recognize how foolish a notion this is, because I do have an audience there, but in my experience thus far, it is really, really hard to move your platform. When I tried to get folks over to Substack, it was some, I mean, it's like a 
tenth of a percent or something. Right. They're not even jumping ship. All they have to do is come with me. Uh, Mastodon, I think, is probably about that. Or you have to hope that the people you want to interact with are mm-hmm. are there already, and then you've got to find them again. And mm-hmm. it is not frictionless. It really isn't. So yeah, I think it's a bad idea to just go r- running off to to the replacement platform or to the existing one. So right? oh, right. you can find me on Instagram, you know, which has all the same problems and more. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll use, start using LinkedIn again. Like LinkedIn's the healthy social network. Is well, you know, no. I mean, it's, maybe it's better in certain ways, but it's got all the same structure, all the same patterns. So there is no innocent example, and and for that reason, we can't pretend that it's harmless, or at least that it's a value-free move to try to jump ship. Just another ship. (laughs) Your expression of hope that Twitter will go down, that the Pequod will sink, is a perfect segue into what I think is the other strain in your Atlantic essay, which is this idea that we stand on some sort of precipice at some sort of pivot point, epochal perhaps, that might include the end of social media. I will propose that, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith says that every great innovation, financial and otherwise, is always a way of disguising debt. In some ways, where we stand right now is that the disguise of debt is falling away, both in the space of crypto and in the space of various forms of digital media. The streaming services are all buried in debt and not making money. The social media services are all buried in debt and not making money. And their venture capitalists, their investors, their stockholders, however they are organized, are becoming increasingly dissatisfied with that state of affairs. In some very recognizable ways, as in Musk needing to find a way to make Twitter profitable in a matter of weeks just in order to service his loan and finding that it was impossible to do so. In other ways, I think that the effect of this debt-fueled innovation is harder to see. But in any case, we stand here at a kind of potential juncture, as you express in the piece. And if we are not going to just another wave of social media services, right, what is happening? Yeah. Right? How, how does this landscape revise itself, not just in terms of, you know, our media consumption, but also the way our economy is structured? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. If I did know, I guess I'd, I'd go start a hedge fund or something. But they don't know either. Uh, right. But if I knew, then, you know, uh, the answer I, I hope for is that the, the downscaling idea applies to everything. It applies to everything. So the expectations that everyone developed over the last two decades around consumption and capital, they, they need to be massively revised. And that includes uh, so many things, so many things. We've already seen some of them start to crack previously. All of the subsidies that were being poured in to these venture-funded services to draw users into them such that they might, well, first they could show user growth in their financials, but then also so that they could prognosticate lifetime value out of those customers. Those have been falling for a while now. So if you try to get an Uber in the last year, you know that it's like freaking expensive to get an Uber. And it didn't used to be less because of the way that it was uh, subsidized by the massive capital infusions that that company had raised. 
And we've seen, you mentioned the streaming services, we've seen that too. They're eking, eking, eking up the, the prices, realizing that it's not enough just to have subscriber growth, especially when that subscriber growth doesn't translate to profitability anyway. You know, we've seen it in the drive uh, among the companies themselves to develop anything new that might uh, rekindle the fires that, that launched them. The iPhone is the most successful product in human history. Nothing ever before and perhaps ever again will rise as hot and fast as that device did, especially at the profitability that Apple managed to uh, squeeze out of it, which was Tim Cook's responsibility. It's no accident that he was Steve Jobs' successor. But nevertheless, that's what the street has demanded. That's what the users, they're like, what's, what's next? What's next? And they haven't found it yet. And there's all sorts of promises. Facebook's uh, own recognition, you know, that it's in trouble, thanks in part to Apple's new privacy policies, but other factors too. Zuckerberg's drive to invent this uh, $15 billion VR metaverse fantasy has that same twinge to it. All, all of these things are desires for growth. And we've had those same desires for growth as uh, consumers too for a long time. The rapidness with which we expect to be able to access ever greater quantities and qualities of products and services, uh, and the way that the technology industry has provided that. We've acclimated almost fully to it. The VCs, too, you mentioned the VCs, right? The expectation of the speed and size of reward that investors expect. Scalability, scalability. scalability. Yeah, the, uh, the scalability. So all of that has to downscale, too. We need some kind of massive correction at an economic level, not just at a social one. One way to go about that is through a massive economic collapse that would dismantle everything and, and from which we'd be forced to rebuild. That would be quite a drag <laughs> if that were the case. And I'm not advocating for it by any means. I do wonder if it might be on the horizon. And I'm not alone in, in having that question. No. I'm certainly not going to paint that there might be a bright side to it or something. But we, we did work our way, willingly or not, uh, into this moment, and eventually the debt comes due, like you're saying. The thing that I don't think is going to happen is capitalism is going to end and that we're going to give up on this mode of economic and cultural productivity for good or for ill and kind of come to our senses in the face of the urgency of the climate crisis or what have you and change our ways fully. I think that's probably unlikely, but I mean, that would be fine too. That'd be lovely <laughs> if, if that eco-critical uh, fantasy arose. Uh, but in any case, I just keep coming back to downscale as a principle. If you look at something and you ask of it, how could it be scaled down? We have to at least consider it. Or we begin exercising that muscle of executing downscale and also of tolerating it. That's the preparation we need to make for this next phase, this next era, even if I can't tell you exactly what the, the shape and, and nature of it will be. You expressed your desire for Twitter's collapse and for the perhaps collapse of the larger industry, the whole sector of, of social media. And there is evidence of a kind of planned obsolescence at Facebook. But you also, I, I hope you don't mind me saying it, you know, before we started recording, said you're not so sure that's actually going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
I'm not so sure either. Yeah. As we speak, as we're recording this, yeah, I think the top trending hashtag at Twitter is Twitter shutdown, right? And there are employees locked out of Twitter offices. There have been mass layoffs followed by mass resignations. And there certainly is a widespread belief that, that we are almost to the end of that platform. If that's not the case, though, yeah, yeah, that seems. What, what, what does it look like? Yeah, in its next phase. One question is how widespread the the perception really is, and yeah. it's hard to know that. I mean, you know the mm-hmm. the echo chambers we fall into in these in these platforms are real, and among the very online, especially the very online on Twitter, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to avoid the conversation about Twitter, and those things ratchet themselves up into this frenzy. It's important to say that Twitter, a lot of people use it, or at least a lot of people have accounts on it, but it's by no means, even remotely, right. uh, the size of Facebook, Instagram, yeah. WhatsApp, YouTube, in terms of, of usage. It's, it's relatively tiny by comparison, and whether it was worth $44 billion is highly debatable. Even that number is a fraction of what these, these competitor companies are worth or the, or the products with, within them. I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I, I agree with you just in the, the sheer number of daily active users, its potential profitability, its advertisers, its you know, a fraction of Facebook or some, some of these other platforms. Right. Is it disproportionately powerful despite that because of the hold it has over other forms of media, over American politics, over academia, so on and so forth? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. The kinds of people who rely on, who love, who draw others to Twitter make it feel and maybe make it actually more important than it seems. Uh, and that includes the media industries who are unhealthily obsessed with, with with Twitter. It includes celebrity. Not the only place to be a celebrity online. It's, it's a very bad place to be an internet-born celebrity online compared to YouTube or, or Instagram, for example. But a quote-unquote normal, ordinary celebrity can broadcast there and reach their audience directly. Politicians, same thing. Pundits or people who fancy themselves these other kinds of figures. And certainly there's been a skew. People have talked about this more recently, but they've been talking about it for years, that you know, you see the way that news media uses Twitter and construes the things that are visible there as representative of the world. That's always been a danger. And even back in, you know, 10 years ago or so, when we were seeing the, the rise of internet news outlets and so on, you'd, you'd start, you started to see like, the, you know, these embedded tweets as, as evidentiary, you know, like here, here's my citation is some random tweet. That was not a great idea at the start and it remains not a great idea. But, but notwithstanding all of that, notwithstanding all of that, apart from, I don't know, some uh, actual m- mechanical or operational catastrophe, which is possible and maybe we can talk about too, I'm not sure that I buy that somehow this thing is just going to implode. I think it's a delightful fantasy. I understand why people have it because it would be momentous it would be dramatic to to witness this to witness the the collapse of this cornerstone of internet life but but of course we all dream that we live at the end of history and that this fantasy is maybe a it's maybe a modest expression of that 
It's not like living through the Cold War or the climate crisis, but it is something. It is kind of what you want most, right, is to live through the end of history. Not to it, but through it. Mm-hmm. I, I was there. Oh, but I'm, yeah. I'm still here, actually. It's okay. And that fantasy is even more powerful because there's no stakes, no personal stakes in it, really. I certainly don't think the question of how likely the technical or business collapse of Twitter really is has been effectively tested by anyone who's been chattering about it either in newspapers or on Twitter, which is where most of that, <laughs> of that chatter uh, seems to take place. The, the realistic, likely situation is that nothing really changes and we just keep on at it. Or that, that the thing that does change doesn't amount to change. It resembles change. It's sameness in change cosplay. And that could mean that Twitter gets revitalized or bought and sold or, or, or what have you, which has happened before you know, in this space, or that it declines into oblivion, but something else comes along and takes its place, which has also happened many times before. So it's not just that the bird site or or the app has to go down, right? It's that the whole armature, this whole mode of being would need to change. That seems very difficult, despite the title of of the article and the the argument I make with them. And it was an earnest aspiration in the piece, but that doesn't mean that I think it's likely. The the McLuhan theory around media would suggest in order for that kind of obsolescence to actually be realized, there has to be something that muscles it out. There has to be some sort of new medium mm-hmm. that will capture our attention, that will do many things better than they are currently being done by social media will also do some things worse but will triumph if you think about it in a just directly McLuhanite way if the thing that social networks overheat into reverse into is is social media like once we have connection to everyone we get this obsessive constancy of social media then it also might be possible to argue the reversal of social media is back into something like social networking again, right? That the collapse of the scale would result in the renewal of locality and of, of, of specificity and of, of, of actual community and all of those kinds of things, which I think are the ones that drew people in in the first place 15 to 20 years ago. Something, at least in McLuhan's eyes, right? Something new does have to arise to cause a medium's downfall, but there's nothing that says that that something new has to be new. Right. If we can take this tangent into media ecology for a second, the thing about McLuhan is that he was putting together these theories at a moment in history when novel media, in every sense of the word that he meant it, had been happening for decades and continued to happen for decades Mm. after. It was just this Cambrian explosion of, of media. But that condition may have been somewhat unique to 20th century industrialism and prosperity, and we may be beyond it. Maybe we don't get those novelties anymore. And I, I think you see this too in like Apple and Facebook's desperation to replace right. rectangles with goggles. You know, like, oh, well, there has to be something that follows, but does there? Maybe not. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a, an extraordinarily good point is that we are expecting the cornucopia of technological innovation that we experienced from the 1920s to the 2000s. And if that is in fact decelerating in some way, it would not necessarily be impossible. Yeah. 
One of the things that sort of strikes me about your writing on the Atlantic is that you are writing oftentimes about social media, about crypto, about the companies that are in the news, about Uber, so on and so forth. Rarely do you get to write about games. <laughs> yeah. I think that represents something that I see in my own media studies scholarship, both as, as a writer and a reader, and I see in my classes, right, is yeah. that the games are this kind of silent giant that clearly has a growing presence and also a growing share of the media economy, and yet does not provoke us to the kinds of anxious discussions that Twitter does, or Uber does, or Facebook does, or Disney Plus, Netflix, so on and so forth. I was curious from the perspective of somebody who has been writing about games for decades, yeah. why, why does that remain the case? Yeah. And what is the point at which you've talked about things like news games, et cetera, like that gaming actually becomes the thing that starts to fill in some of these spaces and potentially even perform some of these social functions that we have distributed to televisual media, to social media, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. And in one of my books, I talk about it directly, a book called How to Talk About Video Games. And in the last chapter of that book, I make exactly the observation you just did about my work, actually, which is that, you know, when I write about social media or the built environment or cars or anything else uh, at the Atlantic, the audience for it is massively larger than when I write about games. It, it seems as though, and game proponents certainly talk about, you know, how that's some kind of a false impression that if you look at the numbers, that lots and lots and lots of people play video games. And that's true, but not the numbers that use Facebook or, or not in the way that they perceive their engagement with, with games. And there's you know this other thing that we often talk about where game players don't think of games as an activity that they, that they partake of. And they certainly don't self-identify as gamers for good reason, maybe. To, just to speak to that, the beginning of every semester where I'm teaching media studies, I make my students keep a media diary. And almost every time, at some point during the two-week stretch that they are keeping a media diary, somebody reveals that they didn't realize they had to keep track of their gaming. They're keeping <laughs> right. track of social. Yeah, they're keeping track of social media, of television, of music, podcasts, all of that. No, but not games, right? It never occurs yeah. to them for some reason. And these are mainly, you know, freshmen and sophomores in college. But for whatever reason, right. they have made this distinction yeah. between games and other forms of media. And I think that's it. Just speaks to the point you're making, right? That yeah, why? One of the things I've said about games, and in that same book, is that games are a confused medium. On the one hand, games, and this is the thing that drew me to games, by the way, is that games are a lot like other forms of, of cultural creativity, cinema, or, or like uh, literature, or, or like art. They, they have non-functional goals, they express ideas, they have characterization and plot and, and challenge, they're aesthetic objects, all of that stuff. But at the same time, there are these kind of functional appliances. They're like to toasters is the analogy I always use, you know? And like when you use your toaster, you may be concerned about its physical appearance as a decorative object so that it fits with your decor or something like that. 
but you don't think of it as a cultural or artistic experience. And so that conflict between like an appliance, a thing you operate to get something done, and an art form, a, a thing you engage with for its aesthetic value and, and meaning, that's something games really haven't figured out. Now, now, other forms of industrial art have dealt with this in better ways, which have also been worse ways. So if you look at how cinema has contended with this fact, what they've done is just massively downplayed the toaster part of it. So there's all sorts of technical craft at work in cinema, but because cinema is all about the pretense of completion, that gets pushed to the back, offloaded from public view, either in, in production or in celebration. And the, the, the obvious example of this is like the technical Oscars get awarded like, you know, at a Denny's two weeks earlier or something, right? With social media or with whatever you want to call the whole category of, of apps and services that we've been talking about, technology companies have found an interesting end run around this puzzle because they've managed to keep Facebook, Twitter, all the rest have managed to keep this perception and made this argument that all they're doing is providing functionality. These are just appliances, right? Now, we're not in the media business. We're just a technology company. You just use our app to do whatever you're going to do. They've made that distinction. And, but then when you engage with it as a user or as a creator, then you embody that cultural capital ideal. And that's where the whole content industry you know, content creator influencer industry arose from, but also in casual use or ordinary use of Instagram or whatever. You, you're not confused about what you're doing. It's like, well, this is just this is a way for me to distribute my images to my friends, you know, like just a toaster. Just the bread that it produces is this stream of pictures. And that's a kind of ingenious innovation that maybe they didn't mean to, maybe just fell into. But I think one way that they did it, one way that the tech industry did it was by just recapitulating uh, the creative forms of the 20th century. We never got anything new from social media in terms of the form of expression mm -hmm. that it uh, facilitated. It did change them. It's not, obviously it changed them, but it's, it's, it's text, image, moving image, sound. It's all the stuff that we, that we invented and perfected in the 20th century, whereas games were trying to do something different. It was this interactive, experiential, procedural engagement with, with a software system as an aesthetic form. And that's just always been a real heavy lift. People don't get it. I mean, if you ever watch television, it's amazing. You sit there and it happens at you and you don't have to touch it. That's incredible. And that's kind of what social media is like too. And, and then you, you, know, you turn on your Xbox and after it prompts you to update a thousand times, then you've got to do all the work. So I think this is not merely a prejudice. There's something structural at work here. But at the same time, an observation you didn't make is that video games have also been in the doghouse mm -hmm. for decades too, right? The punching bag of, of the media sector over and over and over again, whether it was delinquency at arcades or uh, the deleterious effects of coin drop as a sort of kitty casino or... Uh, Glorification of violence, so on. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All of this has been, you know, a baggage that, that, that video games have borne and have never graduated from, whereas network computing very much did. Everybody started using it and they're like, well, okay, well, yeah, like maybe it's harmful, but, you know, like I'm still going to do it. I'm not going to question that it has some benefits. When I talk to people about this, because I get the same phone calls like every five years or so from the press where they're like, 
asking about whatever the latest thing that that has risen to enough popularity in the gaming sector for people to be concerned about it, Fortnite. And I tell them, I'm like, you know, I get this call every every five years or so. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've done this before. It's like being a Groundhog Day. And they're like, well, but it's different this time, right? You know, like, isn't it different this time? Because, because oh, now it's bigger. This many people are playing. This much money is being like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if it's really any different. I don't know what to say. I, I have leaned into the stuff that works in my work. I mean, I, I, I still work on games and I, and I still write about them and I'm still interested in them. I still teach on them. I'm teaching a class right now. I have felt, though, in the last six months, and maybe the last month in particular, that maybe games do have a role to play in this new age that I've projected. And that came about partly because, well, two things happened. The first is that I'm teaching this Atari programming class that I teach sometimes, because I have this thing where I make Atari games for the original Atari VCS from 1977. And I've been doing it for years, and I've taught it a few times, and it was time to do it again, and I hadn't taught it yet at WashU. So I've been spending a lot of time with the Atari again, and it's, it's like really slow and methodical, and the machine can't do much, and you have to write it, the software in assembly. And, and then Digital Eclipse did the Atari 50 collection, just, just, just came out last week. Um, this really interesting kind of interactive documentary with embedded gameplay about these games. And I was talking to Mike Micah, who's the president there, and, and Adam Orth, who also works, just like visiting with some of my friends and reflecting on the joy, the kind of pure, unadulterated, silly, absurd joy of, of, of those games and how different they felt, not just from contemporary social media, but from what games became. Yeah. Because games have been chasing mm-hmm. the, the social media gold mm-hmm. for a really long time. And we got loot boxes yep. and we got like all this sort of ad crap and we got the, you know, the free to play uh, IAP games and all that kind of stuff. and. You, you just cannot do anything in, in the contemporary media sector without the pace being set by the social media businesses. That's the way it's been. So maybe there might be, I wonder, could there be like a, a renaissance uh, of gamey games? Council games and arcade games. Yeah, that kind of pure experience of, of this engagement with, with, with computational aesthetics that first made me interested in games. And I don't know if I'm ready to sort of project that that's going to happen but i think it's at least i think it's at least possible that that might be one role that that games can play in this future that would be a really positive one and, and would be countervalent to the kinds of social practices that social media and internet technology have set. that was ian bogus for more about this episode please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash downscaling Next week, our Social Problems series continues with Olivia Snow, who is a Tech Impact Network Research Fellow at UCLA's Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Until then, here's Squirt Gun with this season's theme song, Social. I'm Matt Seabrook. Thanks for listening.